Chapter 15 Spiders Andrew Smith was in Portsmouth when his cell phone rang. He was on England's windy southern coast with his wife, Christy, who was about to give birth to triplets. On the line was a colleague in UBS's offices out by the Zurich airport. Several years earlier, Smith had worked there as a low level and largely unsupervised trader responsible for some of the bank's LIBOR submissions. Now, in May 2012, he was based in UBS's London office. Smith's colleague was calling to give him a heads up. UBS's Human Resources Department would be sending him a written warning about his role in L'Affaire LIBOR. A few months earlier, Smith had been hauled into an interview with the bank's HR and compliance people, who had grilled him about whether he'd ever moved LIBOR up or down to accommodate requests from traders. The answer, of course, was yes. Everyone had been doing the same thing. It was the first moment Smith deduced that perhaps he'd done something borderline or even wrong. Ever since, he'd been wondering if another shoe would drop. Now, with impeccably bad timing, Here it was. A day or two later, Christie gave birth, and word came from his boss that a bunch of his colleagues who had been involved with LIBOR had just been told they were losing their jobs. UBS's latest attempt to convince prosecutors that any wrongdoing was perpetrated by a cluster of former employees. The good news was that Smith wasn't among those getting a pink slip, he was just getting a warning letter. Congratulations, his boss said. Pieri and Alikolov didn't fare so well. Both had been suspended more than a year earlier and had held out hope that they could salvage their finance careers. Alikolov was doing everything he could to impress American prosecutors while simultaneously looking for new jobs in Tokyo. He and his lawyer could see the writing on the wall. Pieri was less far sighted. Around the time he was put on paid leave, he moved to Hong Kong, expecting brighter career prospects in UBS's offices there, away from his tarnished Tokyo reputation. He waited around in Hong Kong, collecting paychecks, submitting to interviews with UBS lawyers, and wondering when the bank would end his suspension. It never did. In May, UBS informed him and Alikolov, and more than a dozen others, That they could either resign voluntarily or be fired. That was an easy choice. Resigning didn't leave a blemish on your employment records. As a parting blow, the bank demanded that Pieri relinquish some of the UBS shares that he'd been given as part of his prior compensation. Smith's triplets were a few days old when he received the anticipated warning letter. The bank told him he had to sign it that very afternoon. His punishment was that his bonus, due to be paid out the next day, would be docked by a certain percentage. But the letter didn't specify the percentage, and Smith never found out what his bonus would have been otherwise. That wasn't the only thing that confused him. The letter said the warning was based on the bank's LIBOR investigation and Smith's behavior at that time, but it didn't state what he had actually done wrong. Smith was left to ruminate about the possibilities. Maybe it was something dumb he'd said in a chat. Was it the fact that he'd complied with his colleagues' requests? He wasn't really sure, 
and he didn't really care. His family had just expanded by three people, and he wanted to put the whole episode behind him. He signed the letter. Now the game was truly afoot. At ICAP, two senior managers told Wilkinson in January that the FSA had decided that it was no longer appropriate for him to keep coming into the office. He would be suspended. Footnote. The FSA would later tell Wilkinson that his bosses had been lying. The agency had nothing to do with his suspension. End footnote. Wilkinson's employees took him out for pizza to commiserate. Wilkinson had plenty of company. The prior September, ICAP's general counsel informed Reed that he was being suspended. That wasn't so bad. Reed just relaxed at home in New Zealand and did nothing. Goodman and Brent Davies also were put on paid leave. That spring, Wilkinson was in London to see his tailor, and he and a former colleague caught up over coffee. The colleague said he'd been interviewed by the Justice Department. Wilkinson heard through the grapevine that Justice also had interrogated another former ICAP broker, someone who had hardly ever interacted with Hayes. Now that was alarming. Increasingly troubled, the brash, hedonistic Danny the Animal started going to a shrink to talk about the investigation. Goodman also was in rough shape. A psychiatrist diagnosed him with a major depressive disorder, put him on antidepressants, and enrolled him in individual and group therapy sessions. Over beers with a former colleague one afternoon, he sat in the pub sobbing. After belatedly joining the investigation, the FSA was now an enthusiastic participant. In addition to reviewing reams of evidence that it had collected from banks and brokerages, it was interviewing their past and present employees. And while the FSA was lagging behind its American competitors in terms of the physical evidence it had gathered, here it possessed an advantage. Most of the suspects in the case were British citizens who had worked in London and currently resided on British soil. The FSA, therefore, had a much easier time tapping this human intelligence. How valuable it would turn out to be remained an open question. That spring, Farr and his lawyers arrived at the agency's headquarters to be interviewed. Greeted in the FSA's lobby, by an enormous sculpture of an owl bearing its razor-sharp talons, the visitors were given name tags and escorted up a spiral staircase to an interview room. The FSA had the right to compel people to honestly answer questions or be held in contempt of court, though that information couldn't be used against that person in a criminal court unless it proved to be false or misleading. Farr, who had been ordered to appear, wasn't happy to be there. He intended to be polite, but he had no interest in helping the FSA build cases against him or his colleagues. The interview got underway with an FSA agent asking Farr how often he carried out Hayes' requests for him to talk with traders and other brokers. I would regularly say to him I would, but it was sales talk and bravado, he replied. I didn't always ask people. I just said I would. Farr further explained that his band of brokers had a communal Bloomberg account, 
in Farr's name and situated at his desk, but his colleagues also used it. So really, Farr now told the investigators, it was basically impossible to say if anything that had been written in his name was actually written by him. Farr said he had an awful memory, so, as much as he would love to help, he just couldn't be sure about what he'd written. Trying to resolve this uncertainty, the FSA pointed Farr to a Bloomberg chat with Hayes in which Farr's son Sam was a topic of discussion. I just wondered if that made it more or less likely that it was you who was making these entries, an FSA investigator wondered. It could have been me, Farr said. I think the bottom line is, did you have a teenage son at that time? The agent asked. I do have a teenage son. Did you at the time? Yeah, well, he's not a teenager anymore, but I did have a teenage son at the time. For a moment, that seemed to settle the matter. But the guys who I work with all know I have a teenage son as well, Farr added. I'm not denying this is me. I said I just can't recall that it was me. Another investigator, Patrick Meany, was losing patience. But the point is, the other guys on the desk are not going to sit there and pretend to be you and pretend that they're talking about your teenage son. Why aren't they? Farr asked. Because what's the point? What would be the point of doing that? Well, they may do, Farr said, then started to mumble about their possible motivations. One of Farr's lawyers, Shah Qureshi, stepped in. I don't think Terry, with respect, was suggesting that anyone was trying to pretend to be him. I think his point is that others did use that line. We seem to be having a great deal of problem getting you to acknowledge that, and I'm wondering why that is the case, Meany said. I'm not denying it's me, Farr said. I said it's likely me. It was 5 p.m., and the interview was brought to an end for the day. When the process resumed the next morning, Farr still was playing games. The investigators were getting frustrated. He said he didn't know what the word counterintuitive meant. He said he wasn't misleading Hayes, then later acknowledged that perhaps he'd told him the odd white lie on occasions. He said, over and over, that he didn't remember things that he'd spent hours chatting about. He said that, to the extent that he had seemed to agree to do anything untoward, he often misspoke in chats. When the interview turned to the switch trades, Farr claimed that they weren't tied to attempts to get LIBOR moved in helpful directions. Instead, they were Hayes's way of thanking Farr for the bespoke services, prices, information, market intelligence, trades, that he was providing. On another occasion, Farr insisted that he had no idea what Hayes was referring to when he thanked Farr for his help and Farr promised to keep helping. Your answer is not credible, Meany snapped. Early in 2012, Hayes's name started surfacing in the media. The first reference was a Wall Street Journal article on February 7th. Awkwardly headlined, Rate Probe Keys on Traders, it reported that U.S. authorities were investigating a number of traders, and that, at the center, was a British man named Thomas Hayes. The story, which ran on the cover of the journal's Money and Investing section, 
seem to be based on reporters figuring out the identities of the anonymous individuals mentioned in the Japanese regulators' reports a couple of months earlier. The story also mentions Chekaray and McCappen. Soon, other news organizations followed up with their own reports. Hayes had been in talks with Holt about joining the business school as a teacher to lecture students about how finance worked in the real world. The media attention led Holt to revoke the offer. Hayes panicked. He told Ty that maybe he should just kill himself. It was the first time he'd said anything like that. He didn't seem serious, but Ty was alarmed. Notwithstanding mounting evidence to the contrary, Hayes still insisted he didn't need a lawyer. So he was surprised to hear that Brent Davies had hired one. When he asked whether Davies thought he should find one too, Davies didn't hesitate. Yes. Hayes's father, a reader of the business press, saw his son mentioned and also urged him to lawyer up. Hayes ignored both of them. But Ty put her foot down. At first, he argued, again, that since he'd done nothing wrong, he didn't need a lawyer. The disagreement escalated into yet another shouting match, and this time, Ty prevailed. Yet, when Hayes contacted one law firm after another, none would represent him. The problem wasn't that he was an unattractive client, quite the contrary, but most of London's prestigious law firms already had been retained by other individuals and institutions ensnared in the expanding LIBOR investigation. Eventually, in March, he settled on a small firm called Fulcrum Chambers. The lawyers and their new clients sat down in the Victorian brick building where they had a suite and went through his situation in detail. It was a remarkably upbeat gathering the first indication of what would become a surreal and disastrous legal relationship. The fact that his name had been mentioned in newspapers as a key figure perversely struck Hayes as encouraging, and his lawyers didn't disagree. The press exposure on me is a positive sign, he asserted. The stuff that's not in the press is the stuff you need to worry about. People aren't going to leak info on me if it would jeopardize a massive investigation. People are more willing to speak if they're not scared. For a man as logically minded as Hayes, it was bizarre reasoning. The Fulcrum team discussed the possibility of Hayes suing Citigroup for wrongful termination. They will have to pay for mistreating you, a Fulcrum lawyer, David Williams, intoned. Another, Ivan Pierce, warned him against speaking to the press. The information you have is powerful, Pierce explained. Leaking anything would weaken that power. Hayes asked about the odds that he would be charged by and then extradited to the United States, which he knew from Alikulov was conducting a criminal investigation. This, he acknowledged, was the only thing that really frightened him. American courtrooms were notoriously inhospitable places for white-collar defendants, thanks in part to U.S. prosecutors' ability to strong-arm witnesses into testifying in exchange for lighter penalties. British prosecutors lacked such plea-bargaining powers. And prison sentences in the United States tended to be far longer, not to mention less pleasant, given the violent conditions in many American prisons, than those imposed by British courts. 
Williams estimated that the chances of him facing U.S. criminal charges were 10% or less. The Justice Department didn't have an interest in getting into an extradition fight with the United Kingdom, he said. You're not that important to them, Pierce added. Footnote. Williams added a caveat. Strange things do happen. End footnote. The lawyers suggested that Hayes get in touch with Checkeray to see about coordinating their legal strategies. So Hayes and Ty flew to Geneva, where Checkeray had begun to work at Brevin Howard. It was a nice reunion, the women discussing motherhood, the men speculating about the direction of the government investigations. Checkeray didn't seem worried, but he soon started telling acquaintances that, to his great surprise, his former employee apparently had constructed a spider network to execute his nefarious LIBOR scheme. There was an apt handle, with strands stretching across the globe. The web trapped the naive and unsuspecting. Checkeray, too, was trying to cast all the blame on Hayes, even though this web was in fact shared by many spiders, Checkeray among them. For a few weeks that spring, the financial world's attention was consumed by another scandal in London. A trader in J.P. Morgan's London office, Bruno Ixil, had amassed huge positions in an exotic class of derivatives called credit default swap indexes. Before long, his bets grew so big that he was controlling a substantial slice of the market and had acquired a nickname, the London Whale. As Hayes had learned, Size is a mixed blessing, and when markets turned against Ixil, competitors smelled blood and attacked. Things quickly careened out of control. Soon Ixil's team was sitting on losses of more than $2 billion. When the media caught a whiff of what was happening, a story made infinitely sexier by Ixil's nickname and J.P. Morgan's reputation for having survived the financial crisis unscathed, the bank's overconfident CEO, Jamie Dimon, dismissed the whole saga as a tempest in a teapot. But losses kept growing, eventually exceeding $6 billion. Regulators and prosecutors started investigating. Soon they zeroed in on Ixil's underling and his manager as the primary culprits. Both would be criminally charged. The high-ranking brass, who'd thrilled to the profits Ixil generated, as well as the senior executive who supervised the disastrous investment strategy, were not prosecuted. In early May, Reed flew in from New Zealand to sit down with the FSA. He had been on paid leave from ICAP for eight months now, spending time with his family and volunteering at a Presbyterian retirement home, where he tended its gardens and to its frail patients. The meeting room was crowded. There were four FSA investigators, a CFTC official who had traveled from Washington, a second CFTC investigator joined over the phone, and four of Reed's own lawyers. The tone quickly grew testy. Meany asked Reed about Goodman's daily run-throughs with their column of suggested LIBOR data. Why, he asked, was Goodman suggesting where banks set LIBOR? Reed said it was more a prediction, a forecast, than an instruction. But why isn't it called 
predicted LIBORs, if that's the case, Meany pushed. Suggested and predicted. Don't you think it's the same word? Reed said. No. You don't? I suggest these are the LIBORs. I predict these are the LIBORs. It's the same thing, isn't it? No. We'll agree to disagree, Reed announced. I think in common English understanding, the word suggest and the word predict are actually quite different, Meany said. Well, Reed concluded, I think you're being very pedantic. A couple of hours later, Reed tried to explain why there seemed to be so much evidence indicating that he and Hayes were working together to try to influence Goodman's run throughs. We'll take credit for things we don't do. Of course, it's just a broker's way, Reed told the investigators. If he says, you know, I like these high and they go up, then of course I mention it. Oh, it's probably down to us, I would imagine, Tom. You drip feed these things into people's psyches. Reed argued that it was virtually impossible that ICAP had any sway over banks' LIBOR submissions. We can't influence that. What we can do is try and take the credit for stuff. Does that seem a little bit dishonest to you? An FSA investigator, Harsh Trevetti, asked at another point. No, it's not dishonest, Reed said. Why is it dishonest? You're telling Tom you're doing something that now you're saying you didn't do, Trevetti explained. Meany chimed in. Wasn't it also highly risky? In the sense that Tom Hayes was your only client, and so you couldn't afford to lose Tom Hayes as a client, and so, if you had been essentially misleading him over a long period of time, and he had found that out, what would his reaction have been? Well, it's, you know, there's no way he can find out if we're doing something or we're not doing something, Reed replied. I'm not that fussed, to be honest. I didn't go to New Zealand to work and it wouldn't bother me one way or the other. Do you routinely mislead your clients? Meany asked. No. Would Hayes be surprised to learn that you were passing him misinformation over all this time? A CFTC official asked. How am I passing misinformation? Reed asked, tying himself in a knot. Why didn't Reed alert his compliance department to what Hayes was seeking? Well, why should I? Reed responded. I think banks do things that are inappropriate every day. Why should I pick up on them? It's not up to me. I'm not a regulator. No, Trevetti snapped. You're not a regulator. And if inappropriate activity is brought to you, you don't have an obligation to escalate it, is your proposition? Precisely, Reed agreed. I think if brokers brought everything to you, then the brokers would end up having no clients, and therefore there'd be no broker jobs. With that, one of Reed's lawyers suggested that perhaps it was time for a short break. Six days later, it was Wilkinson's turn. He'd been preparing for weeks for this interview, sifting through the documents that had been handed over to regulators who shared them with Wilkinson's lawyers so their client could familiarize himself. When the day came, he and three lawyers were met by four FSA agents and a CFTC investigator. Wilkinson's hope, encouraged by his lawyers, was that a can-do, cooperative attitude would score him points. When Wilkinson started referring to his colleagues by their nicknames, 
His lawyer, Matthew Franklin, politely interrupted. I'm conscious that it's second nature to you, but bearing in mind the FSA may not know who Junior, Lord Bailiff, Clumpy, Rodders, Hare, Lurch, and Noggin the Nog are. We know who most of those are, Meany said. Because we can probably give you a crib sheet if it's helpful, Franklin offered. Yep, I'm here to help, Wilkinson seconded. At times, he seemed to be introducing new elements of complexity, just so he could help the FSA interviewers wade through them. Acronyms tumbled out of his mouth. What did his clients trade? Not just instruments linked to LIBOR and TIBOR. There was Z-TIBOR. There were JGBs, which trade on TSE. There are BLAs. What are those? Well, Wilkinson explained, a BLA is an IMM Z-TIBOR forward rate agreement on a single period swap against an IMM overnight index swap for the same period. Yeah, said Trevetti. There was more. There's also JLOs, which were similar to BLAs. What else did we trade? Butterflies. We do butterflies in swaps. Do you understand what butterflies are? No. Butterflies are a complex type of derivative. Three swaps bundled into one, Wilkinson explained, unleashing a tsunami of numbers and other details. They're quite lively, he added. To avoid getting the investigators' hopes up too much, Wilkinson let them know early on that he had a dreadful memory. I go home at night, and the next day I forget what I was doing the day before. It was a convenient flaw when being asked to recall potentially illegal things he'd participated in. But one thing Wilkinson had no trouble remembering was that Hayes was a nightmare. Here, the broker said, was a guy who deserved to be punished. He trotted out the notorious story about the shepherd's pie. The FSA eagerly lapped it up, with one official noting earnestly that the fresh-out-of-the-oven pie must have been dangerously hot. Yeah, so that's the guy we're dealing with, really, Wilkinson agreed. He went on to regale the investigators with tales, possibly exaggerated, about Hayes's unparalleled clout in the markets, how he was a force of nature not to be reckoned with, how he seemed imbued with nearly magical powers. Wilkinson had a harder time pinning everything on Hayes when he was confronted with evidence pertaining to Reed and Goodman. But Wilkinson insisted it was all an act, including those times when Wilkinson himself asked Goodman to comply with Hayes's wishes. And even if Goodman was sending out skewed data, why would any bank listen to him? We're a lowly broker. We just shout a price and buy them a beer. In the hierarchy of things, why would they listen to Colin? But, of course, some banks did use the run-throughs to set their own LIBOR submissions, and Goodman did occasionally change his run-throughs in accordance with Hayes' requests. Confronted with email traffic in which he told Reed that he would bully a colleague into changing the run-throughs, Wilkinson insisted that he didn't remember the incident and that, in any case, he certainly didn't bully anyone then why had he told Reed that he had? I often spun stuff, exaggerated stuff with him, Wilkinson said. Are you putting a spin on us? Trivetti asked. 
No, it's a bit different spinning a colleague than spinning, you know, a compelled interview in front of the FSA and the CFTC. If I was to spin or blag a client to get a trade done or to appease a colleague, it's a hell of a lot different than sitting here telling you guys a load of bollocks. That day's interview ended after about six and a half hours. The FSA thanked Wilkinson for his time. My pleasure, he said. That spring, Goodman was hanging out in a pub. He'd had quite a bit to drink and found himself talking to a fellow broker. His name was Spencer. Goodman didn't catch his last name, and he worked at R.P. Martin. Goodman mentioned that he was on extended holiday. Oh, why is that? Spencer asked. I'm just on extended holiday, Goodman answered. The cryptic response was enough of a clue for Spencer to figure out who he was. Okay, you're involved in that, are you? Spencer, it turned out, had some familiarity with the LIBOR investigation. He mentioned that R.P. Martin possessed an audio recording of Hayes shouting at Farr to get LIBOR down. Even in pubs, it turned out, Goodman couldn't escape the scandal. Footnote. The same was true at home. One day, he was setting up an old iPhone for his son and encountered a cache of years-old materials, photos, emails, text messages. Dozens of the texts were with Reed. Goodman alerted his lawyers, who passed the messages on to the FSA. They would become crucial pieces of evidence against the two men. End footnote. A couple of months later, he was ushered into an FSA interview room crowded with FSA and CFTC investigators, as well as four of Goodman's own lawyers. Goodman remained emotionally frail. His psychiatrist had warned him about the perils of undergoing intense questioning. He was liable to make mistakes or just fall apart. They took lots of breaks, generally at the broker's request. But even lunch, which the FSA had wheeled into the meeting room, was eaten under watchful eyes. That morning, the FSA handed Goodman a small stack of spreadsheets and charts. Investigators had examined his daily suggested LIBORs in 2007, 2008, and 2009 and compared them to what various banks actually submitted. It was clear that a number of banks had repeatedly mimicked his suggestions up to four decimal places. Goodman said he had occasionally suspected as much. I just looked at certain banks when I'd think, oh, maybe. But he said he didn't realize how many banks were frequently doing it. Instead of suggesting that Goodman was being dishonest, as the investigators sometimes did with Reed and Wilkinson, Meany took a softer approach. At this point, I would remind you how important it is in this interview to be full and frank in your answers he said before asking Goodman for the real reason he was getting an extra monthly payment on behalf of UBS. Goodman acknowledged that it was partly for his help with LIBOR, but he denied that it was anything improper. If Darrell asked me to do something, I did what I thought the market was going to do, and I generally ignored him, he said. I can see it looks ridiculous, he acknowledged. Even on occasions when Goodman had seemed to engage, he claimed that it was all a ruse to get Reed off his back. Unfortunately, 
I avoid confrontation, Goodman confessed. I tend to put my head in the sand. The interview adjourned around 5 p.m. That night, Goodman's mother-in-law fell down the stairs. She broke two ribs and her arm, and her body was covered in pitch-black bruises. Blood clots formed in her broken arm. The doctors thought they might need to amputate it, but she was too weak. They put her chances at survival at one in ten. Goodman's wife was already trying to be strong for her beleaguered husband, and now this. Goodman told the FSA the next morning that he wanted to get the interview done with. Do you feel that you're capable of giving evidence today, notwithstanding all the other personal issues? An investigator asked. Yeah, yeah, fine, Goodman said. The questioning didn't get too aggressive, and the interview broke for lunch at 12.33 p.m. Shortly thereafter, Goodman got a phone call. His mother-in-law was dead. Gary Gensler knew this would be a big day. It was a pleasant early summer morning in Washington, and he had arrived at work early. Around 8.15 a.m., he phoned the Treasury Department, trying to reach Tim Geithner. The Treasury Secretary, who in a different job four years earlier had pestered the Bank of England's Mervyn King about the problems with LIBOR, wasn't around, so Gensler spoke to one of his deputies. He wanted to give Treasury advance notice. In approximately 15 minutes, the CFTC would be issuing a press release that had the potential to rattle investors and move markets. He thought Geithner should know beforehand. The CFTC's June 27th announcement was indeed a doozy. Barclays had agreed to settle charges, not just with the CFTC, but also with the Justice Department and the FSA, that it had tried to manipulate LIBOR. The bank's lawyers and executives had figured they'd derive an advantage from being the first institution to resolve the accusations. They were braced for a media and public lashing, but they figured it would quickly subside. Surely, the public would realize that it reflected Barclay's extraordinary cooperation with the authorities. As part of the settlement, in which Barclays agreed to pay about $450 million in penalties, it admitted that its employees and executives had engaged in a long-running scheme to skew LIBOR for the bank's own benefit. Each regulator released dozens of pages of documents detailing the bank's misdeeds, including quotes from the damning phone calls and chat transcripts that had mesmerized investigators for the past two years. Now, for the first time, the public was given a taste of what the LIBOR scandal entailed. Lowballing, the practice of banks understating their true borrowing costs in an effort to appear healthier than they really were, was indeed widespread, and the settlement documents contained a tantalizing nugget. Unnamed members of Barclays' senior management were directly involved in the efforts. Footnote. Barclays lawyers successfully negotiated to keep any clues about the executives' identities out of the settlement documents. End footnote. Soon the race was on among journalists to identify those executives. Just as Gensler and his colleagues had hoped, the settlement hit all the right notes. Bankers behaving badly, a mysterious but powerful interest rate, the obligatory champagne references, 
a whiff of executive sweet complicity. The settlement dominated newspaper headlines and TV news shows. Even the comedian John Stewart weighed in, gleefully informing his late-night viewers that Libor was a mythical half-wild boar, half-lion. In Britain's House of Commons, David Cameron, the Conservative Prime Minister and longtime friend of ICAP's Michael Spencer, denounced the probably illegal activity. Hayes angrily watched on TV as the Labour Party leader, Ed Miliband, a family acquaintance thanks to his mother's years of work for Gordon Brown, denounced Cameron for not taking a harder line against LIBOR manipulators. Whenever these scandals happen, he has failed to act and he stands up for the wrong sorts of people, Miliband declared. A few days later, another Labour leader, Ed Balls, said, The reason why people are so angry as they think when people avoid their taxes or cheat on benefits, they get sentences in jail. But when bankers do massive multi-million or billion-pound frauds, there aren't criminal prosecutions. The uproar grew even louder when it became clear that the senior management that had ordered the lowballing was none other than the bank's CEO, Bob Diamond, and his top deputy, Jerry Delmissier. Within days, Mervyn King demanded that Barclays remove Diamond, whose brash American tendencies had long offended the central bank governor's sense of propriety. King soon got his way. Delmissier also resigned. But instead of defusing the scandal, the departures fueled it. For the first time in years, senior bank executives had paid a personal price for misconduct that occurred on their watch. Suddenly, LIBOR seemed to be the vehicle with which authorities could exact vengeance on an industry that for too long had acted with impunity. Parliament convened hearings and set up a committee to investigate misconduct in the banking industry and what could be done about it. One of the things, it was quickly decided, was to pass a law that officially made it illegal to manipulate benchmarks like LIBOR. Up until now, The rates hadn't been subject to any regulation or legal or government oversight. Clearly, if lawmakers wanted to shout about the criminal actions of bankers, it would help for the actions to formally be classified as crimes. A few days later, bowing to political pressure, the Serious Fraud Office issued a one-line press release. Its new director, David Green, has today decided formally to accept the LIBOR matter for investigation. Angela Knight canceled the summer parties the BBA had planned to throw for bankers and members of parliament. She apologized for the short notice, but noted, this is not the time for such an event to take place. Beyond lowballing, there was another element of the scandal that, until the Barclays settlement, hadn't been on many people's radar the massaging of LIBOR to benefit banks' trading portfolios. And as the days passed, people started paying more attention to this new flavor of manipulation. Hayes had carefully read the Barclays documents. He came away feeling reassured. Thankfully, my name seems to have been forgotten, he emailed his stepfather. I may escape by virtue of the fact that my stuff all took place in Japan with yen interest rates. Luckily, I don't trade dollars. 
If mom is worried, please reassure her as the press are sensationalizing it all as usual. That month, a confident Hayes decided the time was right to launch a new company. Some of his university friends were looking for money to launch a software programming business in their native Bulgaria. Hayes agreed to provide about £150,000, enough to hire about a dozen people temporarily, and to file the legal paperwork himself. The launch of the company, Title X Technology, seemed like a big step toward rebooting his life. A jowly former prosecutor with an unsettling pension for mid-conversation, snapping photos of whomever he was talking to, the new SFO director, David Green, was hanging his credibility on the success of the LIBOR investigation. The Treasury had agreed to provide an extra £3 million to bankroll the case, and the SFO had assigned a couple dozen people to it. But Green remained cognizant of his agency's limited resources, and he was nervous about getting outgunned by the Americans. The SFO team was led by Damien Holling, who had joined the SFO in 2009 after years working as a Hong Kong police officer focused on financial crime. Tall, slim, and with receding black hair, Holling had immediately focused the agency's investigation on what had been going on in UBS's Tokyo office. After all, practically everyone in the legal community knew that the Swiss bank was, under its own ground rules regarding the flow of information, willing to help anyone who asked. The SFO quickly sent out notices to Hayes's former employers, as well as R.P. Martin and ICAP, demanding that they hand over relevant documentation. That same month, the United States formally requested permission, which it needed to seek under a treaty between the two countries, to interview a number of British suspects in the LIBOR case. At the SFO's behest, the United Kingdom stalled on approving the application. Hayes's lawyers, meanwhile, started prepping their client for what to expect. Unlike in the United States, where an arrest is often an immediate precursor to being charged, British authorities arrest suspects as part of the evidence-gathering process, often at an early stage of the investigation. Hayes's lawyers said it was most likely that the SFO would just call to schedule an interview, but they couldn't rule out Hayes's house being raided and him being hauled off to jail for the day. Spooked, Hayes called his old tullet broker, Noel Cryan. Have you heard anything? he asked. Apparently I'm being investigated. Mate, yeah, Cryan said. I mean, obviously the rumors are rife. Cryan mentioned that British regulators had been searching through the brokerage's emails. I think they're building a case, and I could get a knock at the door any morning, Hayes said. He added, can we meet up? Cryan paused. He had never liked Hayes much, and now he knew the guy was toxic. To be quite honest, I'm not going to meet you, no. Then he added, I'd rather you didn't call me either, because I'm not comfortable with it. In early December, despite feeling put off by the British government's foot-dragging with Justice's interview requests, McInerney placed a courtesy call to the SFO in the interests of transatlantic harmony. He gave Green a heads-up that Justice planned to file criminal charges against Hayes and another person 
on December 12th. That other person was Roger Darren. Though the two men loathed each other, the United States had collected gobs of evidence that showed them working together to move UBS's LIBOR submissions. Justice concluded it was important to charge more than one person in order to show that this was a conspiracy, not just a lone bad guy. The charges would be filed under seal before being unveiled roughly a week later, McInerney explained. Okay, fine, thank you, replied Green. Unless the SFO moved swiftly, it was about to lose one of the investigation's easiest targets, someone who also happened to be a British citizen, to the Americans.